This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I am your host, Lores, and tonight we are going to be discussing David Gordon Green's Halloween. Michael Myers is a human being who killed his sister when he was six years old. And he came after you. We just want to know why. We want a glimpse inside his mind. I couldn't think of a better man to have on the show tonight than my substitute host from episode five for Hereditary, Jacob A. Miller, who is one of the biggest John Carpenter Halloween fans I I I know. So, Jake, how's it going tonight? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm actually uh, doing quite well. This I was excited to talk about this movie and my uh, my YouTube channel. I actually got a message today that some of the people watching it are pretty excited to hear what I have to say. So. Uh, that's going to come later. I'm probably going to give it a more uh, a more formatted review, and then maybe then maybe have something a little bit more straight up, or do it in reverse order. But nonetheless, something will be up there soon. I think it did it set the November, uh, October record, or did it just fall short of Venom? I think it just fell short of Venom, but th- there was a lot of individual records that it had set, like. Uh, What's it? Leading actress over fifty-five. Any any October film with a lead actress. Um, horror film number two behind uh, the It reboot from last year. So it's right. been pretty significant, nonetheless. What was your feeling going into the movie? Obviously, there was a lot of buzz, and I was pretty surprised to come away from Halloween seeing that it not only killed at the box office, but for the most part. Critics really seem to have enjoyed this one. It's over 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is certified fresh. And granted, you can't really give Rotten Tomatoes much credence, especially nowadays. But I think that does mean something for a horror film. Well, no, you're making a good point. Like, you see, I've been super excited about the newest movie to come from this franchise for years. And I've been following all the updates since Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 dropped in 2009. And it's just been through development hell. There... There was uh, Halloween 3D, which was supposed to be made by Patrick Lussier and Todd Farmer. Uh, There was a script for that, but it it just never came out. Then there was Halloween Returns a few years ago from Marcus Dunstan, who is behind the Collector movies. That was about ready to go, but then they cut it off at the last minute. And then this one, yeah, with all the buzz it's been having, I've definitely been super excited for it. But you're, you're... right there with me in the sense that with a lot of the critical kind of upheaval of the movie that was seeming to happen before anything had really concretely been seen, I myself was being a little too, or not a little too, but a little cautious in that I think people were deciding they liked the movie before they had even seen it. And there were already inklings of attaching the Me Too movement to the movie, which which is fine in one regard, but I, I, I typically don't like to bolster a movie's, uh, I guess, reception beforehand by attaching issues to it. So right. stuff like that really kind of made me cautious and try to really, I guess, tempt me to go in with a very balanced kind of mindset, not expect to be blown away or to hate it completely. So while I was very excited for it, I had, I think, I think, tempered expectations just to not be too i guess swayed by the hype 
Now, were you a fan of David Gordon Green before you went into this Halloween? Because he's probably in my top 10 modern filmmakers. I really love a good 85% of his filmography, like George Washington. Uh, and he's got such he David Gordon Green probably has the most interesting filmography of any working director just because of how diverse it is with the different genres. If you take a look at his origins, he's got movies like, as I just said before, George Washington, All the Real Girls, which are just kind of like tiny pre-mumblecore, mumblecore movies that are made on a much better budget and just better films in general. And then he kind of diverted into popular comedy with Pineapple Express and Your Highness and even... Uh, the movie that wound up putting him in director jail for a little bit, Jonah Hill's The Sitter, which was completely unwatchable. And <laughs> from there, he's kind of also just had this weird trajectory of doing mostly direct-to-streaming films. I know he had Prince Avalanche with Paul Rudd, and then he also did, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, it was some, oh, Manglehorn, which was Al Pacino and Harmony Corinne in a movie and it was so low key and then he did the Boston bombing movie stronger which you you know you and I worked with a guy who was in that movie in the background recently and now yeah. he's kind of back in the mainstream which is so it's very bizarre full of ups and downs but were you familiar with his career yeah it was a little bit um yeah <laughs> pineapple express was one i think that a lot of people got into when i was in high school and i watched it I didn't really like it. I maybe liked a couple things about it, but as a whole, that wasn't my kind of movie. Uh, it, it, I don't know. I, I guess it just doesn't have that cult appeal to me that it does to others. Um, but then, actually, down the line, oh, yeah, and I, I didn't even bother with films like Your Highness and stuff like that. So, Who yeah, did? I, th <laughs> I think that whole phase of Dave Green's career, I, I think, actually, to go off on a little tangent... A uh, pretty, pretty well-to-do producer in Hollywood I had the opportunity of meeting with uh, a year and change ago. And we had actually brought up Dave Green when we had uh, had met with each other. And he, he made actually a really good uh, observation that I've tried to heed in the time since me and, uh, him and I met. I talked, we talked about Dave Green and how he's had this weird trajectory, but now he's making a very or adding into a very prestigious, if you will, franchise with Halloween, having made something like Your Highness and Pineapple Express. And this producer in particular said to me, I'd rather win 10 Razzies than win one Oscar. So that, that was interesting for me to, say, uh, for me to hear uh, in that just getting your name around there and being pretty marketable and working with different people can give you different opportunities. Mm -hmm. So... But to go back into uh, Dave Green's career, yeah, I was turned off by the comedy stuff. Like, none of that. It just really wasn't up my alley at the time. But then I watched Joe with Nicolas Cage, which I believe came ah, out yes. in 2015. And I liked that quite a bit. Not not only because it's a pretty good performance from Nicolas Cage. It's not, it's not his complete kind of craziness, but it's definitely a compelling performance from him and believable. And... This just feels like a very personal story from Dave Green, uh, who's from that general general area in which they had set Joe. I think Dave Green is from Georgia or South Carolina originally. He's, he's from mm -hmm. one of those states, as well as uh, Danny McBride. So he seemed really familiar with the locale. I thought 
the cinematography was well done in that film. And I thought there was a real earnest story there that he was able to tell. So when I had heard, in addition to Stronger with Gyllenhaal, when I had heard that they're bringing somebody like Dave Green to make the new Halloween film, I thought, well, that's definitely a step in the right direction because you go back to the early aughts and the mid aughts when they were doing all these horror remakes originally, it was bring in the stylistic kind of directors, bring in music video directors, bring in musicians like Rob Zombie, who had made a name for himself directing music videos. And then eventually he got into making his own films, but then, you know, he made Halloween and Halloween (laughs) two from the aughts and, Mm -hmm. uh, those I, I don't think really translated well. So it was great to see somebody who's had this long, diverse journey in filmmaking and with just a natural passion for filmmaking uh, come into the game and try to try to bring this series back to its roots in craftsmanship and in storytelling. I just I, I looked up his filmography in full because Joe had actually slipped my mind that that was one of his movies. But I remember enjoying that film quite a bit when it first came out. He released Your Highness and the Sitter in the same year. Both were huge duds at the box office. And then, you know, it seemed like he took two years off and returned with something that was much more similar to the beginning of his career. Like, he started off with these small kind of passion projects, then did the big blockbuster movies, I guess, to... uh, get what you were kind of getting at where you talked about your meeting with that producer, a little bit of Hollywood clout to have some room and maybe some money financially to do whatever he wants or just have more opportunities. Yeah. That's what I think it was really. I think it was, you you can go avant-garde for so long in that industry before I'm, I suppose you're going to start hurting for money because yeah, George Washington an acclaimed film, I think that was from 2000, Mm -hmm. but it made zero dollars and yeah, sure. It got him maybe another job after the fact, but again, he, Dave Green is 43 years old, I believe. And he made, he made George Washington when he was about 25 or 26. So there's a transition into the industry that I think a lot of filmmakers like us need to be conscious of that. Sure. You you can break through with those avant-garde style hits once in a while, but eventually you're probably going to have to play the game and start making some projects that might not be exactly up your alley, but they're going to market you better and they're going to make you more versatile and get you involved with the right people. Sure. Just networking there is going to be incredibly beneficial. And, you know, it did seem like for a second that he kind of went back to that well because he had a, a Tina Fey movie come out in 2015 called Our Brand is Crisis. And that movie tanked at the box office and it got terrible reviews, but it was a mainstream movie. They they had put it out. And then with Stronger, it's the exact opposite case where it was really under the rug. It just showed up at the red box one day. And that was essentially its premiere. Um, but now Halloween. It's kind of interesting to me because... His name and also Danny McBride's name, you know, they were only attached to Halloween for a short period of time. I think we were still doing the political podcast, you and I and Hans and everybody else, when this news broke and we started talking about it on that show, completely unrelated to anything else. And that was only about a year ago where they had inked that deal. Before that, David Gordon Green was attached to direct Suspiria, the remake of Suspiria, which comes out this week. And I I have no idea 
how that would have gone. Uh, But I've been also hearing mixed reviews about that movie as well. The guy who did Call Me By Your Name directed Suspiria. So he's kind of, I guess, branching out a little bit too. Yeah, that's interesting. I I feel like that that's much more an experimental type of horror film. For sure. Whereas with Halloween, you can definitely be more versatile and you can... You don't have to adhere as much to certain kind of technical qualities, but Suspiria is known to be a really idiosyncratic Italian horror film. So I feel like you need to follow that criteria if you're making that movie. I definitely think that David Gordon Green could have pulled that off. If you even look at George Washington, which was his first film, it is visually exquisite in a way that many first films from filmmakers often are not. So if anybody was going to be able to handle that, it would probably be him. That's not to say that uh, Luca, whatever the fuck his last name is, some Italian guy, I don't I don't know, uh, won't be able to do that. Call Me By Your Name was also a very exquisitely shot movie. But I, I don't know. I, I'm very curious to see, uh, you know, where David Gordon Green's career goes post-Halloween, if he kind of maybe returns to the well. Cause, and maybe we should get into this after we talk about the movie itself. But they have Green later sequel to Halloween, or if, uh, you know, maybe he'll dip his fingers into the horror well in other ways. Uh, who knows? But what, let, let's let's talk about the film itself, because we've been talking about a lot of the peripheral things. What was your ultimate takeaway from Halloween 2018 as far as it being almost a, well, I, I don't want to call it a pseudo remake, but there are aspects of this Halloween that... Uh, obviously draw from the original and kind of recreate certain aspects with a little twist here and there. What was your takeaway from it as a direct sequel? And how did you feel about them ignoring Halloween two and a lot of other films in the series? Well, I guess there's so much to unpack with this movie because of the whole retcon uh, aspect. And I, I guess the, to summarize it in short, before we really go into detail, I guess as a direct follow up. Again, I I feel like it didn't skip a beat. Now, I, I definitely have uh, some differing opinions on the movie, but in terms of just following up pretty much right after the first one and forgetting everything after it, I thought it did a fair job in doing so. And just in terms of them actually retconning everything out, I felt that Originally, when I had heard it, I thought, oh, you're going to nix Halloween 2 from 81 out? That that one kind of follows up the, the first one seamlessly in itself because it picks mm-hmm. up the frame after the, the movie originally ends, the original 78 film. But I when you hear of the reason why they did it, I it just opens up so many more story possibilities. And I, I totally agree with their decision in hindsight because once that sister thing is dropped in Halloween 2, you have to deal with that. If you're going to pick up after there, you you have to deal with that aspect. And John Carpenter, to this day, still kicks himself in the ass for writing that. And I, I totally agree, again, with why he would kick himself in the ass for writing that and why Dave Green and Danny McBride would want to just ignore that sequel and just create a new continuity, especially with all the different continuities this series has seen. I don't see why this one would hurt any more than any of the previous retconning, so to speak. So can't do worse than the thorn call. The, the funny thing is that, that I think that started out as something that 
didn't even have a real design to it. And then when the fifth movie came out and they rushed it into production, they just decided to give it this new angle that was really more of a red herring to to get them uh, part six, which took forever for them to come up with. But yeah, yeah, essentially you, you can't, you can't go any worse. And for all the people that are incredibly perplexed by the timeline, I, I just say you, really don't need to overthink these kinds of movies and this is from a huge fan of the the entire series you you don't need to calculate everything and 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 ask so many questions just watch the movie and let it answer the questions for you did you read that david gordon green and danny mcbride wanted to do a recreation of that original ending from Halloween, but it wasn't in the budget. So they wanted, I guess the original idea for the first opening scene was going to be, we're picking up right where we left off and then we're going to cut ahead into the future after the credits. Yeah, what I had heard originally was that they were going to even alter the ending of the original film for the sake of this one. And I I thought I had read something about them possibly killing Loomis at the end of the first movie with a body double that they had accessible to them. I was not I was not feeling that idea. I think that I think that was where the studio actually stepped in and did something right. I think there's there is a point to again start fresh or pick up fresh with this new sequel and erase the other ones before it for the sake of this story, but I think going back and altering too many things, especially like the ending which it's a perfect ending to a really really great movie. I, I think that's something you don't play with. And again, I'm just glad the studio uh, studio stepped in there and did their due diligence because, yeah, they, they were flirting with a couple different ideas, I think. They had erased the connection between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode being brother and sister, which a lot of Halloween fans have grown accustomed to, like that being his motive. But I do think there is something to be gained from having Michael Myers simply be a killing machine. Just you don't know what really drives him. He latches on to somebody new. He follows them. He kills them. And we see that a lot with this movie where he's non-discriminatory. He does something that I, I, you know, I don't think I've seen in any other horror film, which is he kills a child, which I thought was very surprising. And the Michael Myers in this movie is way creepier than any of the sequels. As far as I'm concerned, I actually went back and I watched some of the older Halloween movies not long after I had seen uh, this film, I went and I watched Halloween H2O, and I also watched Rob Zombie's Halloween remake, which I'll tell you what, I'm not a fan of the second one, and I hadn't really paid attention while watching the first one, so this was really kind of like a first viewing for me, but I think that movie maybe undeservingly gets a lot of flack. I think it fucks up a lot of things as far as being a Halloween remake goes, but it just being a movie in general, it's probably one of Rob Zombie's better ones. I don't know if that says much, but... Um, <laughs> well, the funny thing about it is that the worst thing about it is also the best thing about that movie. The best parts of that movie, in my opinion, are the scenes between Loomis and young Michael Myers in, in the asylum. And I think that's as good as the movie gets, but at the same time, you're demystifying the character completely. So it's it's like a zero kind of sum thing for me. I, I think there are a few redeeming aspects in Zombie's first remake, but just like the his whole trashy spin to it, I, I just I just can't 
I, I can't get into that with with a film like Halloween. Well, his brand is white trash. I mean, you got to expect that from Rob Zombie. It would be weird to see cleaned up, normal looking people, to be honest. Well, exactly. That that's why I don't I I don't think he was a great choice to make them because he. It would be like if Quentin Tarantino made a Halloween movie. What do you think it would be like? Everybody's head would blow up and <laughs> Michael Myers would, for some reason, talk about like a hot dog and like why it didn't, I don't know, why it pissed him off in the first place. There wasn't enough ketchup on it. Or I'll tell you what, he would have been perfect for the Texas Chainsaw remake. I think Rob Zombie could have made a great Texas Chainsaw prequel or something. But the main problem with... Rob Zombie's Halloween, and this will be the last couple of comments about Rob Zombie's Halloween before we get back to the new one. I think the biggest problem with that movie was it felt like two movies in one. You get an hour with child Michael Myers, and then you get another hour and a half with him as the Michael Myers that you know you're supposed to know and recognize. And I actually think the second half of the film is much weaker in recreating that original Halloween. Maybe they should have just made a prequel in general. I don't know, uh, but. Something that I picked up on, especially with Halloween H2O, was that Michael Myers wasn't, well, we saw too much of Michael Myers. The mask, and we've, you know, we've talked about the mask a little bit here and there, especially the mask from Halloween, which is just a fucking mess. Uh, depending on which sequel you go to, the mask isn't particularly scary. His d demeanor isn't really scary. The Michael Myers in Halloween H2O, which is oddly like a, bizarro companion piece to this movie that just came out he seems kind of dopey you can see his eyes very clearly he seems kind of aloof the mask isn't quite right and it just seems like and i could be wrong about this but i think the screenwriter from scream did a draft of the halloween h2o script right well no you're you've got the nail on the head right there it was kevin williamson fresh off the success of the first two scream movies that did a draft of it and then on top of that, you have Steve Miner from Friday the 13th direct the movie. Now, mm -hmm. truth be told, I think the movie holds up well enough for a 1998 uh, sequel to a what was then a 20-year-old movie. Sure. I think, I think it holds up pretty well. It's still got a lot of great moments in it, and it, it definitely has some good nostalgic value. But, you know, you, you're definitely right in those couple of things. It, it added a certain degree of silliness and with minor directing didn't really capture a couple of the qualities that were the essence of the first couple of films. And yeah, they, they definitely show with the mask with, with how often you can see his eyes, his expression, his demeanor walking around. And who does he, he kill in he that shot. movie? Uh, he, he's got such a low body count in that film that it almost feels like there's not really it's not really a slasher film. It's more a story about him and his relation to Laurie Strode. He kills the two kids in the nurse in the beginning who was taking care of Loomis. And then he kills the two non-famous people in the movie. But every single star in the film that they got walks away unscathed, including LL Cool J. People want to talk shit about Busta Rhymes and Halloween Resurrection. LL Cool J is far more unwatchable, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. He's an erotic thing. novelist. I mean, what? <laughs> God. Oh, you see that that's Kevin Williamson at work there. And uh, I, I hate to argue with you on this, but LL Cool J, you can you can say what you want about his role in that movie, which is it, it really doesn't serve any purpose. But he's just way more charismatic than somebody like Buster Rhymes is sure. on screen. So I, that was his appeal. And he was getting into TV then and getting into a lot of movies then. 
So that's why they threw him in and to make a few extra bucks. So when he's on screen, I don't mind it because oddly enough, I can believe him that he's a security guard at this place. But yeah, I mean, his whole angle is just silly. And if you wrote him out, I think the movie wouldn't be <laughs> any worse. So no, I, I agree with that. I, you, you can't argue that LL Cool J is far more charismatic than Buster Rhymes, who I, I don't know if he even acted before Halloween Resurrection. Oh, he did. He did. But in some really kind of low level stuff. I mean, he he was in kind of Fast and Furious knockoffs, a couple of lame crime comedies, nothing, nothing crazy. And maybe one semi-serious movie, but I can't remember it. But but he was always playing the, the goofy, the goofy kind of fake tough guy with with the dreads and who was always kind of yelling out late 90s black guy catchphrases. What do, you, what do you mean fake tough guy? He drop kicked Michael Myers into power lines, burnt him to death, Dangertainment TV. He took him down, ended him. That was yeah, that it. was that was only because he cheated and he electrocuted his ball sack. Halloween 2018. What do you think since we're talking about the weak points of the earlier films? Do you think that Halloween 2018 has any significant weak points that took away from the movie uh some kind of uh you know pristineness for you anyway? Uh yeah, there I I do have a few criticisms for it that I think are pretty well founded and that I think uh, make a lot of sense in that I wish the movie really, really had. And, I, you know, I've, I've been seeing a lot of petty-ass criticisms about this movie so far, and uh, from some certain YouTube movie critics that I'm not going to name. But You should name them. Who, who? Uh, I'll just, I'll give you a hint. He looks like he's supposed to be a fat lady. Um, oh, but, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, I see a lot of people criticizing this movie with no real kind of articulation about well, what is it that is wrong about that choice? Or why don't you like that choice? Or why doesn't it fit within the context of the movie? And most of them are just plot-driven. It's like, okay, well, if you if you don't like the overall plot of the movie, I mean, what can I tell you? But I think the qualities that I found missing in the movie really did with kind of the aesthetic and more with the uh, cinematic approach to the film and just keeping the viewer kind of engaged. Uh, so the first one I'm going to mention is that I think about five to ten minutes were missing from this new Halloween movie. And what I mean by that is that this is very plot-driven in that every scene moves the plot forward. And that mm. might be a good thing in some regard, but at the same time, how it felt for me was that there was never any time to really breathe in these in these environments. If you go back to the first Halloween, and I know it's revered as the classic it is, but you're making the follow-up and you kind of want to uh, fit in those shoes. The first Halloween has at least 10 to 15 minutes of just soaking in Haddonfield, Illinois, panning through these neighborhoods with... Very great cinematography from Dean Cundy, kind of gliding through, really getting into this setting, understanding what kind of town this is, understanding the kind of kids and people that live there. It, it, like those first 10, 15 minutes where you're walking with Laurie to school and walking home with her when she's at school and whatnot, that really, I think, got the viewers into the mindset and into the setting. And you didn't have that here because 
there were scenes of, oh, well, Michael's in the the psych ward. Okay, now the podcasters try to interview him, but now they leave, but now he goes and he gets to them so he can kill them and get his jumpsuit. Now he's going to Haddonfield, and, and with the amount of characters they have, it seems like they had to sacrifice those extra five to ten minutes in the movie that would just get us kind of sunken into the scenery, really get us to feel like we're in this town and like we really haven't left since we watched the last movie. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, there's word of a director's cut or just an extended cut that Dave Green had that's about two hours and 15 minutes. I'd be really curious to see what he has there because if this were me making this movie, and I'm not saying I'd make it any better than he would, but what I would really try to focus on doing is really emphasizing that small town feel again. And aside from a couple scenes that you get uh, Laurie's granddaughter, Allison, just walking with her friends. And when I say a couple scenes, I mean maybe about a minute and a half or two minutes of them just talking and kind of walking through the neighborhood. But you don't, and this is where kind of the cinematography kicks in. You don't get those gliding shots that really kind of sink you in. And I think that was a huge thing that, they missed out on. Uh, I have a couple other things that I can mention about it, but I'm wondering what you think in regards to that. Well, I definitely, maybe I, I didn't directly pick up on the feeling that they cut corners a little bit here and there to tighten it up. I did know going in that Halloween went through quite a number of edits and changes prior to it coming out. So I had, I, I guess I had gotten certain vibes off particular scenes in the movie and felt, okay, well, this is maybe something that was a result of the reshoot. Because there was obviously that leak that came before the movie came out that was saying that the real killer of the film was not going to be Michael Myers. They were kind of going to do... They were going to lean into what maybe would have been a Halloween 5 had they followed that trajectory properly regarding Laurie Strode's granddaughter. Uh, I believe her name's Allison in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. So that character was maybe supposed to be a little more nefarious than what we wound up getting. Um, and I, I had thought, okay, well, how did they even have that movie unfold? Like, I, I watched the movie, and, you know, this is big credit to them, I guess. I couldn't even fathom that particular twist being part of the finished movie. Whereas maybe you look at something like Suicide Squad, which obviously went through a number of different edits, and you can see glimpses of what that original version may have looked like. Same with Batman v Superman and you know all the other notorious films that wound up getting chopped up quite a bit in the editing bay. Regarding the, the pacing and whatnot, I do kind of see what you're getting at here where it doesn't quite have that same atmosphere that the original had. And also some of the sequels had. Uh, That's what a lot there. of people online are saying. That's the kind of buzzword they've been jumping on is atmosphere and have tried to stay away from it. But I suppose that yet in in a short phrase, that would be it. Atmosphere. But yeah, the problem that, again, I, I was harping on online critics for was that they weren't really kind of saying, well, how do you establish this atmosphere? And And that's the way I think you do it. You have to really just drown the viewer in this in this neighborhood and in this town to give them that same false guise of security that the original did. And even mm-hmm. if it didn't work to give you that false sense of security, it just lets you breathe and kind of take in the environment and the scenery and not have to follow 
another plot line for this scene. So, yeah, that that was definitely something that when I walked out of the theater, uh, regardless of my overall opinion of the movie, that was one of the issues that I was like, well, yeah, I, I think it just moved too fast in the sense that we we didn't have any time to really take in the environment and really get into the Halloween feel. Well, one thing that I will say that David Gordon Green added to this movie that maybe some of the earlier films didn't have so much was that he humanized each of the characters and especially the victims very well, given the short amount of time that even some of them are on screen. Like uh, I go back to the scene where Michael Myers kills that kid and his father. He lets it kind of unfold. So you get kind of a peek at what kinds of people they are and makes them more likable through humor. Uh, usually effective humor. There's kind of, there's a few misses in the movie uh, that I can point out, particularly, you know, the two cops kind of talking about sandwiches comes to mind. But I, I, <laughs> so I, you I, didn't like that one? It's ironic. <laughs> I didn't mind that exchange. I thought it was, I thought it was well timed. I didn't think it was bad. I just didn't think it hit quite as well as uh, the girl who's babysitting the kid. That the black kid is so hilarious in in, in his moments. Um, and also the uh, the sequence with uh, the kid and his father, the kid who dies uh, and has his gun, that seems pretty funny as well. It went over very well with the audience that I was watching the movie with. But it's stuff like that where maybe it's not directly because of jokes. Maybe you're just you know getting a vibe off these characters one after another. But he definitely makes them feel more fleshed out than the standard slasher fare where... You know, you go over to, uh, I don't know, even I, I think you could even say Halloween 2 doesn't have very good characters in it, aside from Laurie and Loomis. But no, uh, no, no, I you know what? I'm definitely picking on uh, up on what you're saying, and I, I totally agree with it. And what I'll add on to that is that with this movie, what I really liked about it was that and he has a body count of I, I counted him up, I think, 16 in this movie. Wow. Every every kill that happens in this movie there's a logical path of events that kind of connects all of them. And, and that I really liked about it because what I tend to not like about slasher movies that take themselves too seriously is that when, and again, this was something that happened in the Rob Zombie films. You just go to East bumfuck, like out in, no, in, in the middle of nowhere with these characters that you don't see for more than two seconds and you know you're just there to see them get killed, but it serves it serves no nothing to the plot. And this film did it right in that everything that happens, every character that is killed, it does serve the plot. And that might sound like it kind of counteracts my point from earlier, but no, I, I don't think it does because, again, the kills and the kill scenes don't feel wasted because of that. Like with the kid and his dad, first of all, that's, how he gets his transportation, which, I mean, if that's a bad excuse, I don't know what to say. But it also serves a great narrative purpose because he kills the kid and it shows, hey, this movie's not fucking around. So I think that was a really important part to the film that maybe a lot of people, I, I don't think I've heard anyone talk about it. But to talk about the humanization you had mentioned, again, I 1000% agree. Now, at the same time, I think we didn't get enough of some of these characters, like the Vicky character who was the babysitter of the, the young boy whose name I think it was Julian, uh, and her boyfriend who actually had a pretty good line in the movie about, 
kind of the state of the world and that this random psycho killing a few people in 1978 isn't a huge deal. I thought that was a pretty interesting exchange. Uh, Yeah, they were definitely humanized in this movie to a point where they felt so real and and genuine. And again, I, I liked that about the movie a lot because, again, you weren't necessarily getting these archetypes or cliched characters that are just there like talking shit and just spouting nonsense and just wanting you or just tempting you to want them to get killed as fast as possible. These were relatable people, I think, relatable teenagers. And I think, again, another aspect of the film that I don't think a lot of people have really talked about in the days since its release. Okay, so I mentioned like the five to ten minutes I think was missing and then that they needed to kind of embellish or uh, not exaggerate or uh, embellish, but actually just show off more of the scenery and the characters a little bit more. uh, That every scene is just too plot-driven, or not too plot-driven, but that every scene is plot-driven to the point that you don't get five minutes to breathe in this film. But the last thing I guess I'll mention, and this is really a personal preference, so it might not even be a real knock at the movie, but again, to touch on the cinematography, and some of it I think was fantastic, let me just make that clear, but some of it, on the other hand, followed some of the modern conventions that I'm really not a fan of. For example, like uh, pulling up to Laurie's gate in the car, the original film was famous for a lot of things, but its uh, its aesthetic approach was, again, just these takes where you get to be a part of the scene, feel like you're part of the scene, and the camera just kind of goes and allows the actors to act in one space at a time for an extended period. But like when they were pulling up to Laurie's uh, gate to try to get her to be on their podcast, there's mm-hmm. like five unnecessary cuts within a a very short period of time. They're switching to angles, like when the car is moving, that I think is inappropriate. And it just feels like they're kind of uh, stylistically trying to satisfy the younger audience that won't be able to look at a one take for more than 20 seconds at a time. And with these kinds of films, like horror in particular, I think very stationary one take kind of shots are really effective in keeping you engaged and making you feel like you're part of the movie. Yeah, it builds a realism. Exactly. And and that's a thing that I think was missing in some of the earlier scenes. As the movie went on, I think they kind of uh decimated a little bit more, but early on I was thinking to myself, stop making cuts, stop cutting the shot here, stop cross-cutting to this other person. I thought things should have been more well composed and framed in the opening act. For example, that was a pretty damn cool mental asylum they got access to. If that was a real place, that was super cool that they that they found it, and I think it was. And you could see it. It had this real 70s look with the checkerboard floor on the outside uh, court and with all the psycho people standing on it. That would have looked beautiful in this kind of... Wes Anderson Anderson style long shot of the whole of of the whole court with this seventies look to it, and if it just had this kind of balanced wide long shot that that could allow for 
a pretty decent one take. It was just stuff like that that I thought to myself, this is where they kind of stepped into 2018 in the wrong sense. They they kept things too fast-paced with the editing and with some of the camera work where I think they didn't need to. What did you think of that beginning sequence where they have the two podcasters? And also, what, what, what did you think of the whole podcasting angle, which I kind of saw as a jab at things like Serial and Making a Murderer, where maybe certain people are putting their noses where... It, you know, they don't belong. Uh, where you have the two most obnoxious characters of the movie walking into that mental asylum, he whips out the mask, and then they hard cut to a gorgeous throwback vintage opening credit sequence, which I miss for movies, personally. I like when they have a nice little minute-long drawn out. You see the names, and then they have the pumpkin inflating. Uh, I thought that was really cool. I felt that that opening sequence was just kind of a waste really uh, that and you know the, the biggest uh, flaws in the movie for me were that opening and then also the ending but uh, go ahead yeah for that opening sequence overall how I felt about it um, hmm, that's, a, that's a good question I guess I it didn't bother me all that much but I guess I agree with you in that maybe they left a little bit on the table in that I don't think they extracted the full quality of the film that, or of that scene that they could have. Now, they did quite a good job with the psychos kind of being alarmed by uh, Michael's foreboding kind of unspoken evil that, that maybe they feel and the dog clearly feels on that set. But yeah, in, in terms of the whole podcasting thing, I didn't have a problem with that either. I That's probably one of the least contrived things this series has done in its 40-year run. You actually made a good point in that it was kind of like jabbing at all these cr- uh, true crime docu-series. But yeah, I guess for me, um, it didn't it didn't have that kind of cathartic beginning that maybe they were going for. Because I think, what, it was him holding the mask, yelling at Michael to say something, and then we cut right to the opening title sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it was the most effective they could have had. I think it wasn't entirely subtle in the right ways. No. But, but at the same time, I, I didn't see it as a detriment to the movie, and it didn't take me out. And I wouldn't say I was underwhelmed by it, but... Yeah, maybe they could have had another go with maybe one more draft at that opening scene. But again, it it didn't bother me all that much. I think it's a great slasher film, a great horror movie, and probably just about an okay or good movie in general. I I, I would rate it high as far as the Halloween films go, but I would probably put it in the middle of David Gordon Green's filmography. And, you know, it's, it's weird rating a horror movie against other kinds of movies since there's different tropes and aspects of it that you have to kind of feature in because they are staples you know you can't really rate friday the 13th part four against a few good men you know it it doesn't really work that way but uh as far as my gripes regarding the ending the ending to me is where it was most transparent that they went back and started to reshoot things because it felt a little rushed and there were also aspects of it that just kind of felt a little cheesy to me regarding Laurie Strode's character like I kind of I'll tell you one moment that I liked and that the audience 
uh, had a strong positive reaction to was her falling over the balcony. Michael looks down and then she's missing like Michael was in the original. Yeah. You know what? I, I think that's one that has pretty much unanimously been uh, favored from this film. I'll say I, I even liked it too, but there were a couple that I thought to myself, you didn't need that. And the one that jumps right to my mind is when Allison is in class, looks out the window and sees Laurie watching her from outside. That one I could have done without. I thought that was a little contrived, but the one of her falling off the, off the balcony balcony and everything makes sense. And I think it was good fan service. Yeah. And I, I, again, I think it pays to the thematic element of kind of coming full circle. So that was mm-hmm. fine. But then there were a couple in there that uh, I could have done without. What did it for me, What it literally made me laugh out loud was when you have uh, her daughter. And the daughter's name is, uh, you know, escaping my mind right now. But Judy, I think it's Karen. Karen, okay. Well, By Judy Greer. Yes, Judy Greer plays the character. Uh, she psychs Michael out shoots him i was like all right fine that was a little cheesy but fine i i can go with that what made me laugh out loud was jamie lee curtis's floating head suddenly appearing (laughs) you can tell they did this in post and and she wound up doing what's like stabbing him in the neck from behind or something i think she she hit him with she hit him with like a frying pan or something like that (laughs) oh yeah she hit so her head just magically appears in a darkened room so she's got probably (laughs) a little flashlight (laughs) under her chin she she makes a quip and then smashes him on the head with a frying pan. It it made me burst out laughing. I didn't I didn't I didn't laugh, but that to me, I thought mm, again that was one. I guess that was one of the ones that I was like, you didn't need that. And I think what they were trying to pay tribute to with that was in the first film when he slowly emerges from the darkness of the hallway as Jamie Lee Curtis is is crying against the wall. I think that's what they were trying to emulate, mm-hmm. but obviously it didn't have that that same effect. I thought they were trying to maybe turn the mouse into the cat this time, but that one again, that one I could have done without. She could she could have just ran out of the out of the darkness and just and just hit him, or or drop kicked him and said "trick or treat, motherfucker." Yeah, danger. T- uh, <laughs> they did. They they actually had a what I would consider a clever reference to Halloween Resurrection in the movie. It was really? the van. It was the van. It was called like Resurrection Tacos or something like that. Oh, okay. I I, I didn't notice that. I did notice the Halloween three masks of the trick or treaters that were running around, and I appreciated that. What do you think now? The way that they kill off Michael in this movie is another point of annoyance for me because, you know, he's staring. Okay, so just to go over it real quick, if you haven't watched Halloween 2018 and you want to be spoiled, they get Michael Myers trapped in this little basement area and he's locked in. There's bars and they can very easily just shoot him in the face. He's staring right up at the three remaining characters and they have guns galore they can easily just pop his head like a fucking watermelon they don't choose to do that they choose to burn him and the whole house down which to me says they are planning on bringing michael myers back and obviously we saw the articles they are planning on bringing michael myers back how did you feel about this ending hmm Uh, about the ending i 
what I did like about it was the freeze frame on the hand to end the film. The very reminiscent you know of nineteen seventies films. So that was cool. Yeah, there were a lot of shots like that where it would just kind of pause or do something very vintage that we haven't really seen in a modern film. Yeah, I, I did like that. that part. Yeah, it, it's stuff like that that I really appreciated from this movie. And we can talk more about kind of the technical side of the movie, too, in a minute. But uh, yeah, in terms of the ending, I again, kind of from the story perspective, I was satisfied by it. And I get what everybody's saying with, well, he's obviously not burning yet when they look at him last and they can see him he's just staring up and he's surrounded by flames implying that he's not getting out of there but then clear as day they cut back to the basement about a minute later right back to where he would he would have been standing and he's not there and the whole place is up in flames this is something everybody has talked about so I really don't want to parrot what everybody else is saying but I mean hey the implication is that he's killed and I think uh, for the sake of Dave Green and Danny McBride's movie, that that's the approach they took, that he's dead, the whole place is burning down. But you know with the studios and with the success that this film is already bringing in, people are going to want more of it. So it's either you definitively kill him, but somehow bring him back, which, again, I I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to them going down the anthology route again i'd actually prefer that but um hey if they're gonna sell michael myers to us again they want the path of least resistance to write him back into the next movie so i i can't help but just sympathize with that business aspect of the operation while it's obviously kind of cheap for the sake of the of of the audience satisfying the whole experience I get it. So that's me trying to not say the same thing everybody else has said in the days since the movie has come out. So, well, this is also like the fifth time we've seen Michael Myers burned to death. I just wish they could change it up. Maybe they could flood the basement. I don't know. Just do something different. I, but, you know, it's not that big of a problem to me because I understand what the movie is and it is a slasher film and you have to have that open door ready to go in case it is a success. And there was nothing that really guaranteed that this would be a hit the way that it was. But it seems that they are full speed ahead on doing more of these movies. And there was talk of David Gordon Green and Danny McBride having a trilogy in mind for this Michael Myers. And I don't know about the Laurie Strode character or, or those surviving characters along with her, but this is something that they had in mind going into the movie. As far as I'm concerned, uh, Laurie Strode should not be in any more of the Halloween movies. I think she's been, you've done everything with her that you can to the point where you've killed her before in Halloween Resurrection. They technically killed her in Halloween 4. They said she died in a car accident. Um, and then you brought her back with H2O and she chops his head off. And then now this one, she is a gun-toting grandma and does a pretty good job in handling uh, the shape. So... They've done a lot with the Strode character, and maybe they can keep up with the family somehow, maybe the, the granddaughter. I wouldn't be all that interested or really stumped for that as the primary goal. Um, I think it's better if you just have, if you're going to have Michael Myers, have him choose victims randomly and based on this very 
uh, sporadic kind of impulse that the character has. Where does this movie rank in the Halloween series for you? It's a great, great question. I, I was trying to not do that in my head just after seeing the movie. Um, but if you guys out there haven't gotten my straight-up opinion on the movie, I'll just give it to you now. I think it is very good. I think it has some issues. None of them kill the movie for me. Um, and it's funny, too. There, there's a dichotomy within the Halloween series, at least, because the Halloween series has some of the most ravenous fans. And trust me, I've heard the opinions of a lot of them. Um, but there's a way to judge this movie. There's two ways. You can judge it as a Halloween movie within its own series context, and then you can judge it as a straight-up film itself. And in my personal opinion, I think it's good in both contexts. I think if you had never seen any of the movies before this, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll like a lot of what it has to offer on you know, the storytelling aspect, the scares, the suspense, the and then the filmmaking aspect, the te technical aspects, I think are really good. And then as a Halloween movie, I think it's really good. But if you were to have me rank it, this is subject to change at any time, but right now I'll say I would put it third behind the first and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Oh, wow. You and I have it in the exact same spot, but I would obviously swap Halloween with Halloween 3 as my number one. <laughs> uh, yeah, th this movie is head and shoulders above any of the sequels, including the second one, which is definitely uh, also a cut above what came after that. Um Except Halloween Resurrection. I actually have that as my number four, non-ironically. Because I think if you cut off that opening bit, it's not a bad slasher film. And I know that's a very unpopular opinion. But I think Halloween Resurrection for me is like... Um, so they have 11 Halloween films now. So I think I have Resurrection at number... Um, maybe number 10? <laughs> no, 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 no. Num number 9. I think it's better than... It's better than Halloween, Curse of Michael Myers, and Halloween 2 by Rob Zombie. It's, it has an entertainment factor to it that when you get over those kind of cringy qualities, uh, and there's a few of them, but when you get over those, there is this entertainment aspect to it. Like, you could hate watch it and have a great time. Sure. Uh, so, but not ironically at number four. That's, that's interesting. I, I guess, yeah, the whole... The whole just straight up kind of slasher aspect to it, I totally get. But I, I with Halloween, there's this weird kind of reverence of a higher standard above the other slasher series. So that's I guess that's why I have it a bit lower. Well, I, I, I get that. But for me, I never really thought that highly of the second generation of Halloween movies. Like, I think you can put one and two and oddly three in one column. And then you have the... The, what's her name? Jamie Lloyd is the yeah. character's name, played by Danielle Harris. And you 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 put you put in four and five, and you also add Curse of Michael Myers because it does feature that same character, even though it's not played by the original actress. And those movies can go in the dumpster, as far as I'm concerned. They are some of the the most unwatchable slasher films, uh, in my opinion. Anyway, I, I know would a lot agree of people... with you on five and six, but four. I I think yeah. four is a great return to form for the series. Obviously, I would have favored the anthology route after number two and number three. Obviously, is a great movie, but uh, 
Return of Michael Myers, I, I think, is, again, it, it's straight up. It knows what it is, and it, it's a super fun movie, in my opinion. But five and six stink. A lot of people do have a fondness for Halloween 4, and I, 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 I do notice that. For me, I, I wouldn't argue that it's maybe top five in the series, but it, I don't think it really does enough for me anyway. And where it goes, as opposed to where it could have gone with the ending, uh, is a great tragedy as far as I'm concerned. But I, I, for me, I would have it at uh, Halloween 3 is the first, then Halloween, then we have Halloween 2018, Halloween Resurrection, Rob Zombie's Halloween would probably come in number five. Halloween H2O, even though I have my gripes with that film and the, the lack of body count to it, I think it is a good, uh, almost like a good character piece. The same way that this one is, but I this one's obviously a little more serious than that. That one suffers from trying to be scream a little too hard. Yeah. And then maybe part four, and then the rest can, you know, fall into really any category. With Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, from what I have read and seen, because I also saw a director's cut version of that that was better than what was released in theaters, but it's not a good Halloween movie. And it's not a good movie in general, but it serves better if you look at it as something that Rob Zombie really just pulled out of his ass and not not really connected to that first... (coughs) Shit, I'm dying here. (coughs) That first Halloween movie or anything to do with Halloween. I, I have two, like, 20-minute videos on them where I just I just rip into them for Diagnosis Cinema. But I do mention, I believe in my review of the first film, that there are redeeming qualities to it. But just at the end of the day, his style and his bend just don't really serve the, the, sta- the same kind of standard, I guess, people fell in love with with some of the original films and that it just seems more out of place and like you said would be more welcomed and more in line with something like Texas Chainsaw. I yeah, I just think with Halloween when you when you demystify that whole mythos and you make it just redneck tropes and clichés and make things very human and almost relatable in a sense like the kid being bullied I, I think it does a disservice to what makes these movies good in the first place or at least the original on a more objective basis. There is a significant scene that everybody is talking about that's quite an extensive tracking shot where you have the shape in the shadows in the middle of the street on Halloween and he just lurks through the neighborhood and he goes house to house just slaughtering innocent people and in and is probably among some of the best work in the entire series. And even just from a cinematic standpoint is just unbelievably uh, euphoric for somebody like me to see in a 2018 mainstream film. J- this elaborate tracking shot, which was blocked out really well, shot really well, lit really well. And that, from that shot on, there is a much better cinematic and uh, dynamic quality to the cinematography, to the lighting that's very in line with the original film. And To follow that up, one of the keynote scenes involves one of the characters being stuck in a backyard with motion sensor lights. And again, assuming the people that are listening to this have seen it, that scene completely won me over, not just for the gimmick of the lights, but when 
you cut back and the kid sees Michael Myers a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. And the the beauty of that scene is that it really dialed into the original in the sense that he's supposed to be the boogeyman. So he's a very suggestive figure, not just this guy in a jumpsuit and a mask. And what I loved about this scene, which really took me back to one of the scenes from the original film is when he's closer to the kid after the lights have flickered the first time, all you can see is a silhouette of him because he's completely backlit by the lights behind him. You just see the outline of him. It's so creepy. And then you hear that heavy breathing for like three seconds as the kid just looks at him. And that was among the best work in the entire series. And that's where they really won me over where I was like, they knocked that scene out of the park. Um, I honestly, I think they could have pulled the tension on that scene a tad more. I would have liked that, but just the fact that they had it laid out as they did in this movie was just like enthralling for somebody like me who loves that style of cinematography and, um, that way of just really, uh, exaggerating the tension or as much of it as you can out of a scene. And I, I, again, I could kind of analyze that scene for like five minutes, but I just loved the approach they took and how they nailed it. And it was the stuff like that, that I think really just continued on from about what midway through the second act, all the way to the end of the movie. I think they did a fantastic job in that regard. Well, I think that's the direct effect of bringing in an auteur to a genre where At least nowadays, it doesn't really seem like the majority of the directors that are working within horror put filmmaking first. That is really one of the crowning achievements of the movie that I think for film buffs and like cinematography geeks, you're going to love that stuff. And that is what I think is setting this film apart from any of or a a vast majority of the sequels and really a lot of a lot of competing horror movies of today. I don't think. Yeah, I think 90% of horror movies aren't capturing that. Um, again, I not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I will just say, with my expectations tempered for both films, this film delivered more for me than it did last year for me. And I was really excited for that. Uh, I guess the way I'll sum that up quickly is that you're talking about conventions just a second ago. I think it followed the conventions a lot more uh, stringently and closely than this year's Halloween did. I do agree with that, actually. I felt that this Halloween movie was... And obviously, I've read the book, It, and I've seen the miniseries, but it felt like there was more unpredictability to this film because they didn't really have... It wasn't playing by the rules to begin with, just having David Gordon Green and Danny McBride attached to the film. So... It really felt like they could go anywhere with this property. And I I give it a lot of credit for that. Now, I checked Instagram earlier today. And what I saw was an advertisement for a program on television that I've never watched before. I have no intentions of watching, except maybe this one episode that is airing tonight as we record. And for those curious, it is October 24th. This is not going to be up for almost a week. The Goldbergs have Robert ah, England yes. reprising his role as Freddy Krueger, and he's looking very thick nowadays. I don't know if you saw this. He's a very oh, wide he, man. Freddy's he, gut is... What's Robert England? 71 now? Yeah, he's getting up there as far as age goes. 
But what I had seen was a string of kind of related headlines where at first, and I've brought this up maybe one or two times during this podcast alone, but they're planning the Halloween sequel. But then we have other news that LeBron James is putting money into a Friday. The 13th <laughs> you know what? I, I love that. And listen, as I as as a person, I I think LeBron James he seems to be a really good guy, and uh, he's he's a high achiever, and he's done a lot for people. But the the thing that strikes me is just, hey, how do we revive this long dead or this very maligned series of horror films? Sports ball. Let's do it. You know, Jason Voorhees has been out of action for a long time. Yeah, about 10 time. years now. Oh, God, that makes me feel old. It feels like, honestly, it feels like 2010 was only I know, years isn't ago. that crazy? <laughs> my brain just works that way. I, I still think I'm like 24 yeah, I still years think, old. Yeah, I still think now. I'm 16, 17, <laughs> yeah. So I think what's going to wind up happening is I there's a good shot that we're going to see the return of the slasher genre. This movie made... A very impressive amount of money. I'm seeing it again uh, this coming weekend. You know, you've had attempts in the past where they tried to reignite that flame where you had the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake in 2003. And that kind of, it had an effect where at least they went on to make the prequel with Arlie Ermey and then that greenlit remakes of Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street. And also, I guess, Rob Zombie's Halloween, even though that was from a different company. And you got Scream 4 out of that, too. But I I earnestly believe that we're going to start seeing some of the old icons of the 80s and 90s and pop up yet again. Yeah, th- there's, there's a real kind of upheaval going right now that I think was a misfire in the late aughts and early 2010s with some of the movies you had mentioned. But yeah, th- there's some, some stuff already going on. Now, listen, the Texas Chainsaw series, for one, has gone through maybe the most bizarre kind of timeline of any any development for a horror series like they just had one come out this past year on video on demand called Leatherface and I watched it and it was what I expected I mean it wasn't the worst thing ever but it was kind of mon- it was kind of well, mundane but now they've got another one in development like they're they're starting over again I think uh oh my god let me well let me let me just ask right now because Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers are infinitely more popular characters than Leatherface, but we've had like a good stream of Texas Chainsaw movies since 2000. Like, who is watching? Well, yeah, these like movies? they they made that direct sequel follow up kind of a la the current Halloween movie, Texas Chainsaw 3D, back in 2013, I believe. Oh Christ, that was a fucking oh that yeah. was bad. That was and the so sad thing bad. about it was they tried to they tried really hard to make everything authentic to the original film and then they were like oh fuck it we're gonna go fucking stupid with this but yeah they've been consistent over the last 15 years or so because you have 2003 the remake 2006 the prequel uh yeah 2013 Texas Chainsaw 3D then you have Leatherface last year and now you have another one that's coming up and fuck I probably already I probably missed one in the years <laughs> that I just uh, summarized. So yeah, Texas Chainsaw has had this weird life to it, I think, where the rights keep being traded off or they're just easy to make or something like that. But yeah, they continue to make those films and maybe, just maybe, they'll get it right in the next one. But as long as they continue their trends of 
uh, glossy pictures and pretty people being the main actors, they're not going to capture the spirit of the original film at all. No, I, I think the the remake from 2003 was the closest thing to that out of any of the sequels. Actually, I'll tell you what, Texas Chainsaw 2 is a wonderful movie to watch, but it, obviously a very oh, yeah. different kind of movie oh, from yeah. the original. It's a lot of fun. So putting that out of the equation, the remake is really the closest thing you have to that original movie. And you can say, you know, Leatherface, a.k.a. Texas Chainsaw 3, not the new movie that just came out with Ken Forey and Viggo Mortensen, is also fairly watchable for its own reasons. But it, it, it's, it feels so far away from that original movie. And um, it's just it's crazy to me that just because, like you said, the rights to the to this character and you know this property has gone around multiple co- uh, companies like it was musical chairs just you know that reason alone was the reason why we have so many of these movies but you look at Friday the 13th the remake and Nightmare on Elm Street and uh the Halloween movies and they all did very well at the box office actually Rob Zombie's Halloween movie didn't do so well that actually that leaked online and that kind of hurt the box office uh in a similar way to the leak of uh you know, X-Men origins, but both movies, you know, take them or leave them. But there is a new child's play movie, uh, a remake in, well, in going right Well, this now. is where it, it's getting weird. That, that is a weird one because they have these sequels that have been coming out, right? That the original guy is behind and they even brought back the original Andy who can't act now that he's 40. <laughs> it's almost embarrassing to watch, but they're not doing a remake. They're doing a child's play TV show that has, Nothing to do with anything that's going on currently. Well, no, I think I think that's the the strangest thing. I think they are doing a remake as well as having these parallel operations going on. I I, I mean, I just read about this today on Bloody Disgusting, I believe. And uh, yeah, Child's Play has like two or three timelines going on right now. So that's really weird. But Chucky has been lingering around a little bit himself. So... If if it's actually remade to try to keep up with what is probably going to be a new kind of slasher era, I'd be really interested to see what angle they take with that. Because back in 1988, when you made the they made the first Child's Play movie or uh, whichever year, I think it was 88, uh, I, I think they were tapping into something actually pretty subversive in terms of themes with marketing towards kids and all, all these toy commercials and everything but today i i'm wondering how they would capture that i just looked it up real quick you are correct seth graham smith who is behind abraham lincoln vampire hunter is uh apparently helming the new child's play remake which it sounds like brad dorif is going to have a lot of work lined up for him it has aubrey plaza and Paperboy from Atlanta as the stars of this. Is, new is that movie. Lakeith Stanfield or no, no, no? That that's uh, that he plays like Donald Glover's friend or cousin or something. Paperboy's the that more. Oh, okay. I had no idea that they were this far ahead with the new Child's Play movie. That's crazy. <laughs> but I, if there were a time to do this, I guess it would be now, where you have what's going to be two different solo Joker films in addition to everything else. People are starting to warm up to the idea of multiple universes one of the interesting things about this experiment going on right now and that i think halloween is again it's funny how history repeats itself in that sense in that in 1978 what halloween did necessarily wasn't completely new 
But the fact was that John Carpenter, Dean Cundy, and the whole cast and crew put together a very slick, very well put together kind of art house horror film with that. You might want to debate that, but that's my opinion. And they really popularized kind of the more exploitative styles of filmmaking, but with subtlety and with with suggestion and with atmosphere. But then that popular popularized the whole slasher genre, which was then beat over the head and beat like a dead horse. Um, but now with this new Halloween, I think the trend that's going to really come into fruition, and I also think it's because of the misfires from the late aughts and from the early 2010s, is that I think new productions now are going to follow in the footsteps of Halloween, bring in more journeyman or very distinguished filmmakers that have a real passion in filmmaking and not necessarily kind of the music video styles that they were going for 10, 15 years ago. And I think we're moving toward a trend that the studios are going to be more mindful about the audience's criticisms and about the audience's understandings of the mythos of these films. I mean, that that would be almost a best case scenario, but if this new Halloween film is any indication of where the market is going to go, I think that's what we're going to get. And I think it's something to be excited about because with the failures we've had in the last 10 to 15 years, studios that are investing in these properties, I think are going to follow the model by this latest Halloween production. But that's just a theory at this point. All right. It has been a pleasure to talk with you about this film, Jake. The Cinematologist on YouTube. That's spelled Cinema, T-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. And I'm working on a couple of big videos right now to close out October. The, the channel has been in the middle of its own development process for the last few months. And I've got some new concepts I'm working with. But yeah, I'm, I'm trying to pump out some real quality material to uh, to celebrate Halloween. And when, when they're out, they're out. And I think people are really going to enjoy them. So I can't wait to get them done. Excellent. 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 All right. And if you guys want to help fund this podcast and ensure that it continues to run smooth, head on over to patreon.com slash lowres for a dollar to five dollars a month or more if you want, if you're rich. I, you know, I don't care how much money you you, you pledge to the podcast and the general bland, uh, brand. I said bland. You will get exclusive content. I am working on an episode for Hold On to the Dark. I believe Hold the Dark. I, I, don't, I don't know. It was a very not good movie. But it was by Jeremy Saulnier, written by Macon Blair. And that is going to have an interview with Macon Blair from a couple of years back where I talked to him about Blue Ruin, which was a big surprise hit. Really the first crowdfunded movie to make an impact. You can check that out soon. In the meantime, this has been Movies, and thank you for listening.